We come to our time of study of God's Word, and uh, if you have children who are four years old or younger, we have a nursery that is available downstairs during that time, and so you're welcome to take advantage of that. Uh, I'm going to pray again, this time for our study of God's Word. Uh, We do not come to this lightly. Uh, This is not uh, something that uh, I just make up and give you kind of thoughts from my own head each week. The idea Uh, is very much to recognize this as God speaking to us. That's the purpose of this time. So let's pray and let's ask that God would do exactly that with His Word. Father, we thank You for the Word word that You've given us. And we thank You for the Bible. We thank You for the fact that it contains all the truth that we need about who You are and what You have done. And we pray, Lord, that as we study it, uh, You would make it clear to us. I pray, Lord, that You would take my words, that You would take my thoughts through the week, and Lord, that you would apply them to people's hearts, but only to the extent that they match and apply uh, and further uh, what you have said in your word. And so, Lord, if anything that I were to say is not true, if it does not match up with the scriptures, then I pray that you would make that clear to those who listen and to me, uh, that we might uh, repent of any error. Uh, But Lord, to the extent that what I say is true, uh, that that it matches with what you say in your word, Lord, then I pray that you would convict where appropriate, that you would comfort where appropriate, that you would use your word to do what I cannot do, that you would perfectly apply it by the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture text this morning is Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to start at verse 10 and read through the end of uh, the chapter, the end of, uh, the end of verse 24. That's also the very end of this letter, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, this will finish our study in Ephesians. Uh, This is our third fall season that we have spent in Ephesians. Two years ago, we looked at chapters 1 and 2. Last fall, we looked at chapters 3 and 4. And this year, we have been looking at chapters 5 and 6. And today, we finish that off. So let me ask you to stand, uh, if you're able, as I finish uh, reading from the book of Ephesians. And when I'm finished, I will make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Apostle Paul starts off by saying, finally, he's ending his letter, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers 
and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Following the, uh, the Great War, what we have come to know as World War I, and the first Armistice Day, what we have come to celebrate and just celebrated again on Friday as Veterans Day, there was a great movement in the 1920s and the 1930s, most strongly apparent in Europe, a movement of radical pacifism. It's understandable why Europe suffered horrifically during that great war, and there, are under, there was an understandable desire to never, ever experience something like that again. And so you had people making pledges, pressuring nations to make pledges, that regardless of the circumstances, they would never enter into armed conflict again. Eric Remark's 1928 novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, dozens of other authors and poets, they all pined during that period for a world of peace after having experienced the horrors of war. But can that be? Is that possible? It's remarkable how much war imagery there is in the Bible. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just in the conquest of the promised land or David and Goliath or the wars of the kings. It's not just there. The imagery in the New Testament is in front of us all the time. It's in front of us in what we just read. All this fighting and wrestling and armor, swords and shields and helmets and all that kind of stuff. Why would Paul end his letter to the Ephesians like this? Sounds almost depressing way to end a letter that has been about the beauty and the glory of the reconciliation that God brings to the, to the world. And yet he ends with, be prepared to stay fighting. What is Paul doing? Paul is acknowledging a reality about life that we have to confront. And then he gives us the tools for how to deal with that reality. This is how I think it breaks down. Verses 10 to 13, we see the reality of war. We can't escape it. Verses 14 to 17, Paul gives us the tools for battle. This is all the armor of God stuff. And then in verses 18 to 20, Paul talks about prayer, which in his life as war kind of imagery is the link to headquarters. And then finally, Paul gives us some final greetings at the end, highlighting the band of brothers alongside whom he fought. So you have four points then. They're listed in the bulletin. The reality of war, the tools for battle, the link to headquarters, and the band of brothers. Now first, let's look at the reality of war. Life is a war. It is a, it is a battle. Too often in, the, in this world in which we live, it does take the form of physical violence, but that's not, of course, what Paul was primarily talking about. He's talking about actually a bigger war, a more sweeping war, a more dangerous war. Believe it or not, a war with far greater stakes. And he cites the need for strength. That's what he says in verse 10. He tells the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord. It's actually best understood in the passive voice. Be made strong in the Lord. Because our strength, he wants us to know, doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God. But one way or the other, there is a need, he's clearly identifying, for strength, for preparing oneself for battle of some kind. To gird up, to be realistic about the challenges that one will face in this life. And those challenges, he says in verse 11, come from the devil and from his schemes. Now, it's important to understand that Paul did not understand the devil as a mythical figure, some sort of imaginative uh, metaphor. No, the Bible speaks of him as real. Jesus interacted with him during his temptations. Jesus spoke of him as real. The writers of the New Testament Testament epistles, Peter, Paul, they did the same thing. 
And while some might at times overestimate the devil's power, and we shouldn't fall into that trap. He is not God. He's not all-powerful. We shouldn't overestimate his power. But Paul seems to be more concerned with us underestimating him, just writing him off, acting as if everything is just fine, that there is no greater cosmic battle that's going on. And Paul says, no, you'd better be ready to stand against his schemes. There is a need for strength. Now, what are his schemes? Well, primarily, it's, it's his accusation that God isn't good, that God isn't trustworthy. That goes all the way back to the, fir- to the first chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, where the serpent there essentially said, you can't trust what God said. And even if he did say it, it probably isn't true. And even if it were true, he's probably just doing it because he doesn't really, want to, he doesn't really love you and he wants to spoil your fun. That's my paraphrase of the serpent's temptation of Eve. And it's the same thing he says to us. God can't be trusted. Even if, he, even if what he said, he actually said, he's not doing it because he loves you. That's the essence of the devil's schemes to get you to believe that. And this is the level, the spiritual level, where the main battle is being fought in the heart of every Christian. Look at verse 13. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The commentators will all caution you against turning that list into some sort of catalog of different types of demonic spirit, uh, spirits. They aren't necessarily different categories. They aren't different like departments within you know, the demonic armies or anything like that. Paul's just saying these forces are powerful and they're organized. And if you aren't prepared to fight the battle they fight, then they'll defeat you. It's also a useful reminder that the battleground is spiritual. It's not flesh and blood. The Christian battle lines are first and foremost not drawn out there against an enemy. They're drawn in here. They're drawn in every human heart. Like the Russian novelist uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn observed. The line that separates good and evil, he said, passes not through states nor between classes nor even between political parties, but right through every single human heart. That's where the battleground is. Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet. And he was often annoying to the people in power of his day because Jeremiah was always warning them uh, about pretending that everything was fine when it really wasn't fine. Jeremiah prophesied in the days approaching and leading up to the the fall of Jerusalem. And the temptation at the time was like, you know, it's really not a big deal. All this this stuff, Jeremiah, that you're saying about how we've gotten corrupt, how we've walked away from the Lord, like it's it's really not that big a deal. The false prophets would say, "Don't, don't listen to Jeremiah, you're going to be fine. But Jeremiah knew better. And he knew that pretending that everything was fine is not the answer. This is what Jeremiah 6 says. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You can't just pretend that the world is a world of peace, that our hearts are a place of peace when the battle continues to rage. Paul's saying you need to stand firm. You need to be prepared. And sometimes the peace you seek is only on the other side of the battle that is in front of us. In this old movie from 1995, First Night it was called, uh, Sean Connery, plays King Arthur, and there's a scene, it's one of my favorite scenes, where a former knight of the round table comes back to Camelot, um, and he offers terms of peace to to Arthur. 
Uh, this, uh, this former knight has gone bad, and he has conquered this land. And he said, look, Arthur, he said, it doesn't need to get any bigger than this. Just let me keep what I've taken, and we don't need to go any further. No need for any war. And Arthur stands up for principle, says he can't accept the terms, says it would be unjust. And the enemy says, that, that you're, he says you're being a fool. You're talking yourself out of peace and into war. And Arthur responds with this classic line, you'll have to imagine the Sean Connery accent, but he says, there's a peace that is only found on the other side of war. And if that battle must come, then I will fight it. Christians desire a world of peace, a world without conflict, a world without the messiness of sin, where the wounds of sin aren't serious. We'd love to be free from sin. We'd love to be free from temptation. I'd love to never have to ask someone for forgiveness because I was cranky again. I'd love to to never have to venture into hard conversations because of sin on my part or theirs. Sometimes it's easier to just make peace with with the sin in your your own life even. Just let it slide. Let let, let it have its little piece of your soul. Okay, maybe maybe if you just stay there, let's let's just have a truce. Just kind of let it have its little piece and hope it doesn't expand from there. But we do not live in that kind of world, and our hearts are not those kinds of hearts. The peace that we seek is on the other side of the battle, and so we must be prepared to fight it. Then the question becomes, how? That's point number two. What are the tools of the battle? Verses 14 to 17. It's often a challenge um, to convince young children uh, to spend the day at an art museum, uh, looking at the paintings and the sculpture by, you know, people that adults tell them are very important. But for generations, parents and teachers have used the world-famous arms and armor collection at the Philadelphia Art Museum to lure children into higher culture, right? The gigantic room of, of helmets and shields and swords and spears, full suits of armor, chain mail, and it's got all the beautiful craftsmanship that, that the most sophisticated artisan can appreciate, but it's got all the cool factor that every six-year-old can relate to. It's just like what Paul's doing here, using relatable images to draw you into an appreciation of the tools of battle for the Christian life. This is the famous full armor of God section in Ephesians. It is the classic of children's Sunday school classes for generations. Now, unlike the armor of the Philadelphia Art Museum, Paul does not have medieval European armor in mind. His images are drawn from a combination of what would have been used in battle in ancient Israel and what would have been seen commonly on the soldiers in the Roman Empire. And each of these items that he goes through corresponds to a spiritual counterpart. Now, he doesn't go into it a ton of detail. He doesn't preach a sermon on every single piece, but he does mention each of them, and he does give you some sense as to why he would view this as a spiritual uh, metaphor or image of some kind. Let's go down the list. Right? Verse 14, what do you have? You've got the belt of truth. And this is probably more than what we think of as a, as a belt. It's probably more like a, a, an apron that a soldier would wear underneath the armor. The purpose of the, the belt or the, the, the under, under apron that would need to be fastened was to hold everything else securely in place. And that's what truth does for us in the fight of faith. It holds everything together, keeps it in place, it keeps us grounded. It keeps us, to use the image that Paul used back in chapter 4, it keeps us from being tossed to and fro by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. How do you fight those things? How do you fight deceitful schemes? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to fasten the belt of truth. 
so that nothing else shifts around. Now, then you have, also in verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covers the torso, right? It's the, it's the bulletproof vest of the, of the ancient world. It didn't cover everything, but it covered the vital organs. The goal was not to prevent, for the breastplate, every wound. The goal was to prevent the mortal wound, the one that would kill you. And that's what our righteousness does. We don't have enough of our own righteousness, but because Jesus was righteous, then that becomes our covering. It becomes our breastplate, protecting us from the consequences of our sin, shielding us from the mortal blow of judgment. Now, then verse 15, you've got the shoes of readiness. Now, shoes are not the most glamorous part of a soldier's gear, but throughout the centuries, soldiers know that the shoes are probably one of the most important things you can have as a soldier. The Roman Empire had some of the finest shoemakers because the army needed to move and to operate efficiently, needed to be ready for the fight. Soldiers needed to be able to keep their footing. They needed to be able to move swiftly. The right spiritual shoes allow you to keep your footing when the ground underneath you starts to shift. It allows you to move swiftly so that you're able to proclaim the news about Jesus in different circumstances and situations. Christians must be nimble, need to be steady, as we react to situations of danger. We need to be firm in our footing, knowing what's right. All right, verse 16, you've got the shield of faith. Paul says you need this to extinguish, extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil ones. Now, there were several types of shields that were used um, by the Roman legions, but the word used here is specifically the word that's for the big shield, the, the one that was almost like a small door, about four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. And this, interestingly enough, was not the ideal shield for solo combat because it was heavy. It was hard to move. This was the shield that would be used when you stood side by side with other soldiers. See, in the Christian life, when the attacks come and the spears start flying and the arrows are in the air, we're to stand side by side to lock our shields together. Verse 17 tells us about the helmet of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul uses the exact same image. He says, put on a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. And that helps us understand what he's talking about here. Part of our protection in the spiritual battle now is looking to what is in front of us, the hope that is to come. We will be rescued. Our salvation is assured. Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. This is the last one. And as many people have noted, this is the only offensive weapon that's noted. And this is the Word of God. This is what Jesus used when he battled the temptations of the devil in the, in the wilderness. He used Scripture. Satan tempted him and he came back with the Word of God. That's what we need to use as well. The Bible and the good news that the Bible contains. That's how we attack the arguments. It's how we attack the philosophies that stand against us. In a world of confusion, in a world that's constantly shifting, the Bible brings clarity. It tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. It tells us what's gone wrong with the world. It tells us how what's gone wrong can be made right again. That is our offensive weapon. And that's the armor of God. Quick summary for all the good Sunday school posters for the kids, but the picture actually is not complete if we envision ourselves putting on the armor ourselves alone. I mean, oftentimes that's where the Sunday school lesson ends. It ends with, okay, kids, put on the armor and be strong and be tough. The foundational image, though, of a warrior in the Old Testament was not the Israelites. 
The foundational image of a warrior was God himself, the king of glory. Psalm 24 puts it like this. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And the reason that God steps in to be the one mighty in battle is because that no human is either worthy of or capable of being the protector and the rescuer of his people. That's what the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 said. Even picking up on some of the same armor imagery that that Paul uses here. Isaiah is talking about the injustice of a world that's in rebellion and how that displeases the Lord. And then this is what Isaiah says, Isaiah 59, 16 and 17. The Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He's talking about himself, or in some sense you may see a prefiguring of the Messiah here. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. The Lord is our leader. He ultimately is the one who wears the armor. And we need that. C.S. Lewis, who was a veteran himself of, of, of World War I, a survivor of the, the trenches and went on to become a part of the generation of authors struggling with issues of war while still longing for peace. But Lewis came to realize that you can't just simply wish peace into existence. And ultimately, Lewis, whose conversion to Christianity informed his thinking greatly, ultimately, Lewis understood that when a people can't fight for themselves, they need a king. In the climactic scene of one of Lewis's books in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the climactic scene of, uh, of Prince Caspian, uh, the unrightful and the pretender king Miraz faces off against the rightful high king Peter, Peter the Magnificent, the high king. But before their armies battle, the two of them face off, just the two of them, representative combat or champion warfare as it would have been known in ancient mythology. And Lewis that was his field of, of, of study. He would have been very familiar with this idea, this motif of, of champion warfare or champion combat. It's when the representative soldiers of two sides are chosen to, fade off, to face off and decide the fate of their people. It's like what happened with David and Goliath. Well, Lewis knew and Paul knew that the Christian only puts on his armor and fights because God has first put on the armor and fought for us as our representative, as our champion. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has fought the battle that we can't fight, that he's the one who wears the armor that is too heavy for us to wear, that he has fought and defeated Satan, sin, and death, and he won, and the merits of victory are ours. That's our confidence, and that's our hope. And yet, we still do have to fight on, and so there is a sense in which we do put on the armor after the, after the model of Jesus to fight in this world against the enemies and the schemes of Satan. But that's why we need prayer. Link, the link to headquarters, point number three. Now, prayer may seem like a, a, a separate topic from the armor of God discussion. If it weren't for the fact that it's really just a continuation of the same sentence that Paul starts in verse 14, you might be tempted to make it into a separate sermon, but it's not. This is the only way that putting on this armor ourselves works. We're to put on the armor, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then he continues, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
Now, as others have noted, this might be the Bible's most comprehensive single statement on how we're to pray. And all the commentators point out that you have four alls here in verse 18. Four alls. First one, praying at all times in the Spirit. Right? Now, when he says praying in the Spirit here, he's not talking about some magical prayer language in, in, in tongues or something. This is talking about our posture of prayer, how we approach prayer in reliance upon the Spirit. Whenever we pray at all times, that's how we are to pray. Now, second all, with all prayer and with all supplication. Now, this really just means all different kinds of prayer. When we come at all times, we come with all different kinds of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, intercession, not always all at once, but our prayer is to reflect the various circumstances of life. Third all, with all perseverance. In other words, don't give up. Don't grow weary because, you're, because you, don't, you don't think it's doing anything. Keep alert, Paul says. You can't get weary in a war zone. Prayer helps you do that. Helps you stay alert and awake. Last all, for all the saints. This tells you who to pray for. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't pray for yourself, that you shouldn't pray for yourself. There's times when you should. It doesn't mean that you can't pray for people who are not in the church, even people who don't know about Jesus yet. Of course you should. But it does mean that in war, we pray for one another. We sacrifice ourselves even for our brothers in order to keep those lines of communication open. That's what Navy SEAL Michael Murphy did in 2005 in Afghanistan. Lieutenant Murphy was with three other SEALs when they were surrounded by the enemy, and their situation was so grim that Murphy knew their only hope was that if they could contact headquarters and give them their location. The problem was the communications petty officer had been wounded, and so Lieutenant Murphy was the only one who was able to operate the the gear, but the only way they could get a clear signal was for him to go out into the open in clear line of fire of the enemy. So that's what he did, exposing himself in order to get a clear signal to call in their position from headquarters and request assistance. The wounds that he suffered for his act of bravery ultimately cost him his life and earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor. But it points us to a principle about prayer and the importance of prayer that we need to keep in mind. It's a principle I first learned from John Piper years ago in his book, Desiring God. In his chapter in that book on prayer, Piper says that unless we understand that life is war, we will not understand what prayer is for. You get that? Kind of rings, right? Until we and unless we understand that life is war, we will not understand what prayer is for. What Piper says is we, so, we too often think of prayer as sort of like a domestic intercom that we use to call the butler to bring down more drinks and pillows so that we can enjoy ourselves. He says, but prayer is not a domestic intercom. Prayer is a walkie-talkie for warfare. It is what we use to call to headquarters for reinforcements in the midst of the battle, even at great cost. We use it wrongly as an intercom, and then we wonder why it doesn't work. But if we use it rightly, then we will see its true purpose, and we will see the general respond. Piper puts it like this. He says, following Jesus will inevitably lead us into severe conflict with evil. The evil will surround us, attack us, threaten to destroy our faith. So God has given us, he says, a transmitter. If we go to sleep, it will do us no good. But if we are alert and call for help in the conflict, the reinforcements will come 
and the general will not let his faithful, faithful soldiers be denied their crown of victory. That's what prayer is for. It is our link to headquarters. Now, last point, the band of brothers. And here I'm capturing verses 21 to 24, the seemingly separate, just sort of tag-on greetings and blessings that Paul uses to close the letter. But they're not separate, and they do very much connect with what he was just saying. These are tender moments, these closing greetings of Paul's letters. These are reminders that Paul was not just writing disconnected theology. He was writing to real people, people he knew, people whom he considered to be brothers in arms. The, the term brand of, band of brothers was made popular by Stephen Ambrose's uh, book and the subsequent television series about uh, Easy Company, the Airborne's 506th Regiment during uh, World War II. But the term actually goes back to, uh, to, to Shakespeare, this play King Henry V, where King Henry is addressing uh, the troops in a rousing St. Crispin's Day speech before the great battle. And this is what Shakespeare has King Henry says, from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It's battle imagery. And Paul uses the term here you can't completely disconnect it from what he's just been saying. The footnote will point out rightly that the word brothers that's used in verse 23 is the universal term, includes both men and women. It is all of us who are fellow combatants in this battle. There is a closeness and there is a connection that come when men and women battle together in the struggles of life. When we fight with each other and for each other for our marriages when we fight and struggle together in our parenting, when we face addictions together, when we confront sin together, when we bring meals to one another when we're hurting, when we cry together at funerals, when we rejoice together at weddings. And it goes back to what we briefly mentioned we were talking about, the shield of faith in verse 16. We are not intended, no matter how spiritually mature we think we may be, to fight this war alone. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on Ephesians, points out that many of the spiritual giants of history, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, would describe their experiences of extreme doubt, the unworthy, the even blasphemous thoughts that would enter into their minds at moments of weakness. And he said how they would cry out at those moments for others to help them, to believe at those moments when their belief was lacking. When we're alone, the believer will panic. Guilt can overwhelm us and we can lose our footing. What are we to do? We fight as a team. We turn to those around us and we say, raise your shield of faith over me. Pray for me that I might be protected. Speak the words to me that I know in my head but do not feel in my heart right now. And hold me up while I am weak. You feel weak this morning? Like you can't continue the fight? like you're alone, when the fight gets hard, remember what's ahead. My children have been listening to a series of books called The Green Ember, kind of classic fantasy, fair, set in this mythical land of Natalia, and you got rabbits with swords, that's kind of, it's, a, it's communities of rabbits, and then rabbits with swords, and they fight for freedom as evil descends upon the, the land. We started the third book the other night, listening, and it's a particularly 
uh, bleak time for the good guys at the beginning of book three, the good Prince Lander is asked, are you afraid? And he admits yes. He says, but then I remember what Captain Blackstar told me. He said that we have to keep loving what's on the other side of this fight, the other side of this rescue, and that will have to make us brave. When it gets hard, when you're afraid, remember what the captain has told you, your champion who has gone before you. He has told you to take heart. In this world, you will have struggle, but take heart because he has overcome the world. He has defeated the enemy. Remember that. Look to the other side, the other side of this fight, the other side of the rescue that has been made ours because of that champion, and that can make us brave. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done for fighting the battle we cannot fight, for giving us the tools and the connection to be able to fight this fight of faith in this broken world. Thank you that we are not alone, whether we serve here in central New Jersey, whether we serve across the globe in Italy. You are our God. You are our fortress to whom we can run. You are our champion who has fought for us. When the battle seems scary, help us to look to you. Help us to hold one another up. Help us to remember that you are for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.